Happy New Year. Usually they're sitting on the desk and there. Have you been know, able to I scour know. through the desk? Or? I Okay, I would say talk to Starla because she always gets a copy. Uh, okay. And then uh, there's a copy that gets put on the desk and then there's a copy that goes in our logbook. Yeah, that's where I look. If you want to, did you look in the logbook? I looked in the logbook. It's possible we didn't have church that. <laughs> I know we didn't last week, but like the last one I had for December. Oh no, okay, I guess that wasn't the one. So it's the 18th, so we can have the Okay. I guess we're okay then. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I, um, although there is a, a week in, oh, the, the last Sunday in um, November. Yeah, because it goes from November 20th that I have one to December 4th. Yeah, because if we don't if we don't have it in our logbook, our money counter's logbook, then we probably didn't have church that day. Well, and if you want to stop in after service, and we'll go through that. And, and uh, okay. Well, like I said, I, I did check the logbook because I was checking all these things. But I'll just ask. That's all right. Yeah. She, she, I know she's in the. Not a problem. <laughs> hey Dan, are you Dan? Are you available to read scripture this month? Okay, if you don't mind, I'd like to have you do it uh, starting today. <laughs>
What's the matter with where she is now? You don't you don't know that that you're ready.
Good morning and Happy New Year to those of you that made it and survived. <laughs> Question about the uh, balance of the church here? It's all right. I'll be on that side here in a minute, and that'll be more than enough to compensate. Okay. Uh, we all know all the uh, the things in the in the bulletin today. Uh, there will be no communion service today because of I think, well, <laughs> we're missing a whole a whole bunch here. So uh, we'll schedule that for next Sunday. Okay. Do we have any special prayer requests for anyone? Uh, that you know of at this point. Anyone? Yeah. Jared has a date for his first procedure. It's January 23rd. He's having his heart catheterization. January 23rd, heart catheterization. Write that down. And we will have something really to pray for. Is that this year? Three weeks. Three weeks. And we have a praise here on the left side. Pastor's nephew, Phil McCracken, has finished his cancer treatment. And where do we go from there? Do we know? He, he rang the bell. Does that, I don't. <coughs> so by God's grace and providence, it'll be diminished or gone altogether? I don't understand how that works. Do you still have the cancer, or does? I see. Well, we need to continue to, to pray for that as well. Anything else? Anything else? Anybody has? We all had a good uh, finish last year. 
I can't say that we all survived because half of us aren't here. <laughs> but we'll pray to that end. Okay. Scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. That will be page 1690 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Okay. Keep the Donovans in our prayers as well. Brother George, would you please lead us in prayer? Father, we are very thankful that we can gather in your name today. And especially, Lord, uh, beginning our year with thoughts of Christ. And we're so thankful for your faithfulness to us. It seems that each day should gain more and more importance to us, but yet we fall into the trap of seeing it just as another day. And of course, because it is the first day of the week, it's not another day. It's a commemoration of Jesus Christ and his uh, work of salvation amongst us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us this day to consider the things that you have told us and commanded us to do. And we pray that uh, you would give us strength to remember to serve you and to do that which is honoring unto you. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to let these things go, but to be faithful uh, to your word and uh, to the ministry that you've called us to. I thank you for your high calling to us, and I pray that we walk worthy of your Bless our time today. Bless Pastor Ruth as he speaks. Prepare his, our hearts to hear his word as he brings forth the scriptures to our soul. We ask this, Lord, in thy precious name. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing. Will you please take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 151. 151 in the brown.
New Year, same question. <laughs> Anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? Okay, Sheila has her hymnals out. She's looking. Laura's looking. Oh, Mr. Clayton. No, I thought you had some. I, I, I could. Well, then go ahead. Uh, oh, holy, holy, holy. And I think that's in the brown. Two sixty-two in the brown. We're super close. Two hundred sixty-two in the brown. And it's just because I put you on the spot. Because it's no, like it's not. okay.
you stand with us once again as we do our scripture reading for today. Scripture reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians four thirteen through five eleven, which is page eighteen forty in your pew Bible. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we, still, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day sh should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Amen. You take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 241. 241.
<clears throat> Once again, our text of Scripture is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, and we'll go into chapter 5 a little bit too. In our last message on the Incarnation, we talked about the man who changed the world by considering an overview of just what the pagan world was like before the advent of Christ. It was not a pleasant place to live. In fact, it was a heartless, cruel, and bloody place to live. And not just for Christians, because there were no Christians. It's just the way people devoid of God conduct themselves when their only animation is the spirit of this age, the spirit of the evil one. We learned that children were dispensable. They would put them on the walls surrounding Rome and other places and and let them die by exposure exposure to what well for one thing to the elements the cold the frost the freezing but also to the ravens and the eagles and it's hard to even think about this just let them be pecked to death tortured ripped apart Women were considered inferior to men and incompetent. Elderly and the non-Caucasian people were abused and disposed of. Poor, helpless, and indigents were scorned. And only the elite aristocracy was educated. There were no hospitals, no orphanages, no respites, no soup kitchens, no goodwill industries, nothing by merchants or governments alike, because to give aid to the hurting of society was considered an interference with their karma. Karma being the evil that people deserve because the way they lived their life, now they must make atonement. And that's karma. And the idea is that left, you're left to the fates. Well, Christ changed all that by his own example and by his teaching, which opposed humanistic thought. His greatest work was to live in obedience to God's law so that his righteousness could be credited to his people. And secondly, to die for his people's transgressions so that they could be forgiven and inherit eternal life. Today's study centers on the second coming of the Lord expressed in the Greek word parousia, meaning appearing. As we come to our study, let's ask for God's enablement. Lord, today's subject is very precious to us because 
We're living in the era of this. This is, this is not ancient history at all. This is present history. And we're in the present. So we pray that we'll take it to heart. And that this will be a blessing to our hearts. We do long for the day of your return. The day of your coming again. Because our world is in a bad way. Sin rules. Satan seems to be in charge. Yet we know he is not. He's just a lion roaring about seeking whom he devour. Why? Because he knows his time is short. That's why. And it's short because you're coming again. And he will be cast into outer darkness. So bless us as we study today and give us insight and encouragement that we're living in this glorious age. This final age. And we'll praise you for what you do. Be with our people that are away visiting friends and relatives. Bring them back safe, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's subject is parousia, Greek word. The first thing I would say about it is that it is an event, not just an action. Coming off of this holiday season, I'm sure that your family made plans at one time or another to get together for food and fellowship. Holidays often revolve around such things. And if you planned a dinner for your extended family, most likely you ask them, when are you coming over? The question is a reference to time. It is the same as asking, what time are you coming over? You are anticipating your brother or your sister or your parents or whomever. You anticipate they will leave their house at a certain time. They will arrive at your place for dinner many minutes later. This is how we use the word coming. They're coming. You're thinking about actions occurring. Leave, drive, arrive. That's the way we think. Now we do have somewhat of a timeline concerning the advent of Jesus, but it is rather abbreviated and also very obscure. You'll find in Galatians 4 and verse 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. This phrase, when the time had fully come, tells us that God was working on a schedule. A schedule for the appearance of his son. Going back into the Old Testament, we can read the prophecy of Isaiah concerning a virgin who would bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Isaiah 7, verse 14. We can read Isaiah 9 of the names of this coming child. Names that he was to bear. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 
wow, this is no usual person. We can go to Micah 5, verse 2, and discover the very city, Bethlehem, where the Messiah was to be born. Yet when all is said and done, we are kept as much in the dark about Jesus' coming as we are enlightened. The phrase, born under the law, tells us that it would be a period in history when Israel's people were still adherents to the Mosaic law, but even that is very broad and it covers literally thousands of years when you think about it. You say, well, what's your point? Well, my point is there is no pinpoint declaration of the advent of Christ. We are told that he's coming. We are given some perimeters for his coming. But in the end, we must leave it to God. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. It occurred. It happened. And as we saw from last week's study, the world has never been the same since. Prophecy or no, I think it is fair to say that Jesus' coming was a surprise. Mary, Elizabeth, her cousin, shepherds, Herod, Simeon, Anna, some anticipating, some not. Yet no one had the date circled on their calendar. No one was so prepared for this event that provisions had been laid up and preparations had been made. No, God's schedule was his schedule. And for the most part, he kept it to himself until the timing of the event, and then Jesus was there. This, brethren, is parousia. That's what the word means. He was there. So this is a coming in the biblical usage of the word. It is not coming in the sense of getting in your car and leaving point A to drive to point B at a later time. That's not the idea of the word. It is coming in the sense of not there and then suddenly... There! That's the idea of the word. Now be sure to be sure, it is an event which involves leaving one place to arrive at another, but the emphasis is not on the process, but on the appearance. And as with Jesus' first coming, the second coming is hidden in reference to time. And the scripture says, Matthew 24, no one knows about that day or hour. Well, now wait a minute. Day 
and hour, those are time references. Calendar reference, the clock reference. But no one knows about the day or hour. Not even the angels, this is Jesus speaking, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Matthew 24, verse 36. Boy, there's some mystery there when you think about it. And the context of that text likens it to the days of Noah. Ooh. What? Noah? Yeah, let me read it for you. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Surprise! And you see Matthew compares Jesus' statements about parousia with the surprise of Noah's day. Application is given in verse 44 of that Genesis text. So, in other words, because you don't know the day and you don't know the hour, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. In other words, He will surprise you and surprise me and surprise the world. So again, there is mystery here. What the disciples knew, we also know. They said in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming? The word coming, parousia again. What will be the sign of your arriving? And of the end of the age. So obviously they, these disciples had some knowledge of Jesus' return or they wouldn't have asked the question. They're not totally in the dark here. And what follows is Jesus' answer. He tells them some of the signs they need to look for. And we'll deal with them later in, in this study. Some of the signs that they need to look for. But again... Signs or no, prophecies notwithstanding, nothing is ever said by Jesus which would allow the disciples or us reading their writings to define the day or the hour of Christ's return. Can't do it. Can't do it. What we know is that he is going to arrive. There is a second parousia. There was the advent of his first coming as a child. There is an advent again as the conquering king that he is. 
so is an event which has enough detail surrounding it so as to make us alert and to make us ready, but not so much detail as to ruin the surprise. The event is everything. The action is in the background. How we get there, that's not important. The fact is, we get there. We get there. Now secondly, parousia is preceded by signs. This is interesting. The question of the disciples was this. Tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your parousia, your coming, and of the end of the age? So they want to know more. And they recognize, okay, we hear you, Lord. It's going to be surprise. But is it going to be a shocker? In other words, are we totally left in the dark about this? Why would the disciples ask for signs if it weren't for the purpose of piecing together some of the telltale indicators that Christ's parousia was near? What are signs for anyway? You ever ask that? Think about that? Why do we have signs? You're driving down M24, you're looking for Auburn Hills, and a road sign says Auburn Hills-15. And you interpret that to mean that you're heading in the right direction on M24 and that you are have about 15 miles before you reach Auburn Hills. The sign, the Greek word be samion, means an indicator or a pointer. It is designed to show the way. And when you arrive at Auburn Hills, you will likely find another and much larger sign saying, Welcome to Auburn Hills. And that lets you know that you have arrived at your destination. In Matthew 24, one of the signs or indicators that Jesus gave his disciples was the concept of his coming like a thief in the night. That is, unannounced. Surprise! And so they needed to be ready. They needed to be watching. Now observe how Paul uses this truth in our text 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 and following. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Oh, that's interesting. We do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he is saying... 
I can't give you times. I can't give you dates. So don't ask. While people are saying, peace, safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. First Thessalonians 5, the first four verses. Now follow me here as to why the parousia of Christ is not a surprise to Christians while it is a surprise to the unbelieving world. It is not a surprise to us because we have some inside track on the time and date. No, we are as much in the dark about that as anyone so that we won't get lazy and apathetic and sloppy in our Christian living. We don't know the time. We don't know the date. How is it then that we are not surprised? Let me read it for you. But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 9. So there are two kinds of behavior are outlined here. Behavior characterized by being asleep. Verse 6, verse 7. Getting drunk. Verse 7, at night. That's the opposite of living in a self-controlled way. Other behavior characterized by being alert, verse 6, self-controlled, also verse 6, and verse 8. And daytime behavior, which is has nothing to be ashamed of. Now, how is that described? It's marked by faith and love and hope, the three virtues which remain in God's people till Christ comes, according to 1 Corinthians 13. So, what's the conclusion? It's this. To be surprised at the parousia of Christ is to be living in a state of open sin and rebellion <coughs> to him, and his laws to be night people. You know what I mean by that. The drunkards, the immorality, the crime, the indifferent, saying, peace, safety, when danger and judgment is at their very door. Not to be surprised 
at the parousia of Christ, at his appearing, is to be living as a child of the day. Nothing to hide, but alert, ready, self-controlled, practicing the Christian-like virtues. Faith, hope, love, which Paul describes. People who live this way are, are ready for the coming of Jesus. And they're ready for his appearing so that they may live together with him, verse 10. And in this sense, there is no surprise. Kind of like the story of the ten virgins, remember? Some of them were ready. They didn't know the hour the bridegroom would appear, right? But they had lamps. There were some that were ready. They had oil for their lamps and lit them up. There were others. They didn't have oil, but they had this plan that, well, we'll have time to run into this city and talk to one of the oil merchants and buy some oil for our lamps. But surprise, surprise, the groom showed up at an hour in which they were not ready. None of them were ready. They all went to sleep, remember, including the ones that had oil in their lamps. But at least when the trumpet was sounding, the bridegroom showed up. Those with oil were ready to light their lamps and says they went out to meet him. The others were caught off guard. What do we do? Well, they ran into the city to try to quickly resolve their problem. It didn't work. So the perusia of Christ... While it's a surprise in that we cannot pinpoint the day or hour, it is not a shocker because we don't really care when he returns. We just know he's coming. We long for that day. We're living as though it could be today. And to be honored with a statement from our Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Secondly, parousia is preceded by charlatans and counterfeits. Oh boy, this makes it this makes it tough. Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ. I'm the Christ. And they will deceive many. Matthew 24, verse 4 and 5. He goes on. At that time, if anyone says to you, Well, there he is. Do not believe it. Hmm. For false Christs and false prophets will appear. Matthew 24, verse 23, verse 26. So, if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert. Do not go out. 
Or, well, here he is in the inner room. Do not believe it. Matthew 24, 26. How come? Because there are those who are trying to obtain a following through deceptive teaching. Placing themselves out before the public as though they were Christ. So parousia is appearing, the real appearing of Christ, is preceded by charlatans and counterfeits. Secondly, parousia is preceded by seemingly divine miracle workers. I wish our charismatic brethren would understand some of this stuff. It's in the book. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christ's and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2 of the person he identifies as the man of lawlessness, the false Christ, will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Boy, that's clear. Look in the book and see that Satan has the ability to perform counterfeit miracles. But with no perception of which is which, People will be deceived. Fourthly, parousia is preceded by rebellion and apostasy. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3 says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Jesus taught, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Ooh. Then you will be handed over to the persecuted to be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, they will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear. They will deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, verse 7 through 13. The love of most, this is a scary, this is a scary verse. The love of most will grow cold. Cold. I think of the charcoal Brits in my charcoal heater. It get nice and hot when I want to cook something on it. But the time comes, the hour comes, 
when that glowing brick begins to cool and becomes kind of ashy white and it continues to cool and eventually it goes out. We are seeing in our day, are we not, the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Boy, that's scary. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 34 through 38. And in Matthew 10, Jesus predicted, Brother will betray brother to death, and to father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. This is scary stuff, folks. All men will hate you because of me. And he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Matthew 10, 21 and following. There is assurance that the disciples as missionaries and their descendants will reap a harvest in Israel before the return of Christ. You can read about it in Romans 11. Fifthly, what are some of the signs of the end of the age? Well, look at Matthew 24, verse 3, and you will discover three aspects of the disciples' question. Tell us when will this happen, they say to Jesus. Tell us when this will happen. The words, when this, refers to Jesus' statement about the temple edifice, verse 2. I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's not really my emphasis today, because it doesn't deal with parousia. Nonetheless, that's the way Jesus placed this. So in A.D. 70, General Titus of Rome, later to become Emperor Titus, marches Roman legions into Jerusalem and level the temple, ending the Jewish insurrection. And today, on the slab of that site, stands a Muslim mosque. The temple will never be rebuilt. God's notice to the Jews and to the world, what the author of Hebrews states, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. 
Oh, this is a spiritual temple. And the body of Christ is the way. Part two of the disciples' inquiry was what will be the sign of Jesus' parousia, his coming, his appearing. Part three, what will be the signs of the end of the age? Well, wait a minute. Don't we, we ask? Aren't they one and the same? Well, in many ways, yes. But a subtle distinction might be made that parousia speaks of Christ appearing Whereas the end of the age depicts Christ acting, not all the end time signs are here in Matthew 24. You have to go to other scriptures. So what we have here is an escalation, sad to say, of persecution that's going to come on believers. When Jesus states that there will be wars and rumors of wars, he's quick to say, see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come, verse 6. When he says, nations will rise against nation, kingdoms against kingdom, verse 7, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, he is quick to add, all these are the beginning of birth pains. In other words, the full-blown birth of evil and persecution is yet to come. And we have to ask ourselves, haven't these things been going on for centuries? Well, yes, very definitely. But before we are ready to throw away the baby with the bathwater, we need to recognize that Jesus himself said that this would be just the beginning of birth pains. Verse 9 explains a ramping up of the persecution. Then, so that's a transitional word, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold but he who stands firm to the end will be saved Matthew 24 verses 9 through 13 note here that the persecution is getting personal it is no longer just nameless faceless nations against nation but you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death you will be hated by all nations This is scary. There is a turning on the people of God by the nations who were at each other's throats for other reasons. Now they are united in the common goal of hating and disposing of God's people. For this reason, a tremendous defection results among the who those who call themselves Christians. Suddenly it will be as in the days of Nero, 
Titus, Caligula, Hitler, all over again. Verse 10, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and they will betray and hate each other. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. What's that? It's the apostasy of believers in name only. In name only. False prophets will be everywhere spreading their lies and deception, verse 11. But observe, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So even there, the end is yet future, will be saved. Things are worse, much worse, but the end is yet to come. I think we are living in this period. Muslims have been rioting in England and in the United States cities in protest to Israel defending itself against Hamas terrorists who have been launching rockets against Israel civilians. And the tensions are escalating. Why? Because Jews and Christians are not loved. That's why. And once more, there is a ramping up of persecution, verse 21 and 22. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had been cut short, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. There'll be an end to the great tribulation that's spoken of in the Revelation. John says, after this I looked, and therefore before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. Oh. They have endured it. They have washed their robes, I'm reading scripture, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them.
Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Yeah. That's what we got to look forward to. Revelation 7, verse 9 and following. The persecution ended. But secondly, there will be an advancement and triumph of the gospel. Look at verse 14. And this gospel, excuse me, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. The world has never ever learned (laughs) that persecuting Christians does not kill the Christian faith. It was the same with Jewish faith in the days of Pharaoh's persecution. Remember the midwives were ordered to kill all the boy babies. But they wouldn't do it. And we read in Exodus 1 verse 20, God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. Pharaoh was trying to shorten their number by drowning the babies in the Nile. We read last week Jesus' manifesto. I will build my church in the gates of hell will not overcome it. Matthew 16, 19. Peter, at the beginning of the apostolic ministry, made this assertion. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. Even amidst all of that turmoil and scary stuff. We come out saved. That's Acts 2, 17 through 21. In the Revelation, the author writes, And I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel. That's an interesting phrase. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God, give Him the glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And the second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, 
which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Revelation 14, verse 6 through 8. Ah, persecutors destroyed and the gospel reigns triumphant. We need to dwell on these things, brethren, because we're living in the dark days. Thirdly, disturbance in the heavens announced coming, the coming of Christ and the end of the age. We read immediately after, so that's a transition. Immediately after the stress of those days, that tribulation is re being referred to, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Matthew 24, verse 29. And that coincides with Peter's quote, of the Joel prophecy that we read in Acts 2, verse 20, or consider John's vision. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from the fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like an scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place then the kings of the earth the princes the generals the rich the mighty every slave every man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they called to the mountains and they called to the rocks fall on us hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come who can Stand. Revelation 6, verse 12 and following. Yeah, only God's people are going to be able to stand. Finally, there is a second coming, not a rapture. The rapture theory was developed in the mid-1800s by a Presbyterian minister, Edward Irving. He began to teach that before Christ's return, there would be a reinstatement of the gifts of the Spirit, in particular, speaking in tongues and prophecy and so forth. He was defrocked by the Presbyterian Synod, but he continued on anyway to establish, get this now, the Catholic Apostolic Church. He wanted to cover all his bases. Or early Pentecostalism. In Scotland, at the same time Irving was preaching in London, a young woman named Margaret MacDonald was deathly ill, but on her bed of sickness, she claimed to receive mangled prophecies and visions. She sure was mangled, all right. This alleged prophet, prophetic vision convinced her that Christ was going to appear in two stages at his second advent and not as a single event. John Darby, the founder of the Plymouth Brethren, picked up on 
Miss McDonald's vision. He went to visit her. He developed the whole system of dispensational teaching. On end times, including what has become known as the secret rapture of the church. Just think about this a minute. For 19 centuries, centuries, for 19 centuries, the church believed in but two parousias, appearances, the coming of Christ. His first advent being his birth and incarnation. His second advent being his return from heaven to judge the nation and establish his earthly rule over him. But, C.I. Schofield, a student of Darby, popularized the rapture theory in his study Bible, and the rest, as they say, is history. But it was new. No one before 1830 ever wrote on it. No one before that period ever believed in it. The idea of rapture became popular because Christians liked the idea that they would not have to go through any kind of tribulation. Oh, this is great. We'll just be whisked out. Then let the martyrdom come. book in my library called The Martyr's Mirror covers the period from the apostolic age through 1690. And let me tell you, there was a lot of bloodshed of Christians. But now, from 1830 on to 1909, the Schofield Bible, American Christians believe they will escape what every other Christian church has experienced through history. That is to be naive and foolish beyond compare. A comparison of 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15 with chapter 5 and verse 2 demonstrates that what is called the coming, the parousia of the Lord, verse 4, verse, chapter 4 verse 15, is called the day of the Lord, chapter 5 verse 2. Just connect it. You can, you can read it. You're right there which is exactly what we have studied in Matthew 24, verse 3. What will be the sign of your parousia, the disciples asked, which Jesus called, well, that day, verse 36, and he went on to say, the day your Lord will come, verse 42, that comes as a thief in the night, Verse 43, our text. So the parousia, the day of the Lord, are connected. And again, the same author, the same church, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 and following, equates the two concerning the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. See how Paul connects it? The parousia is the day of the Lord. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Bottom line, Christ has but two comings or parousia. As explained in Hebrews 9 verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The word rapture comes from the Latin, raptus, and it means caught up, carried away. A reference to believers being caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the advocates of this say, see, Jesus' feet did not touch the earth as promised in Revelation 4 verse 1. Then I looked. And there before me was the Lamb standing on the Mount of Zion. And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Let me tell you, that's the shoddy exegesis. <laughs> Say, well, we didn't see his feet touch. At that time, the Son, of, uh, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Matthew 24, verse 30, verse 31. The Lord is going to come in the sky. Why does he come in the sky? So that everybody can see him. Pretty simple. Say, well, those on the other side of our planet won't be able to see him if he comes over here first. I read an article in National Geographic and they were talking about the fact that the Earth's atmosphere is bent. So that what is projected over here can be seen over there. God is not a liar when he says these things. Okay, bottom line, what is our proper response to the appearing of Christ? Believers are charged. May God himself the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, body be kept blameless at the coming, at the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Wow, I love that. There's Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Again, may the Lord make your love increase 
and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when the Lord Jesus comes, Perusia, with all of his holy ones. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12 and 13. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, he may be confident and unashamed before him. We may be confident and unashamed before him at his parousia, his appearing. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. That's 1 John 2, verse 28 and 29. So we got other apostles writing about the same thing. What happens to unbelievers? Matthew 24, 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, there's that bent sky kind of thing, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 27. Verse 13, 31. At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming. In the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And the History Channel had a whole thing on the speed of light. I read it. And they said that is possible because there is a bending of space. A bending of space. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet. They will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. That's in Matthew 24. The account in Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Look, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And Revelation 19, verse 15 says, Out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And John writes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. Will you be a part of the rejoicing or the mourning? M-O-U-R-N. The weeping, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth in pain. What's it going to be for you? Lord, we thank you for your word and praise you for it. Thank you for the teaching of Perusia. We don't cover this a lot of the time, but important that we understand it we're not destined for judgment we're not destined for wrath we're not destined for persecution what we're destined for 
is recovering a new heaven and a new earth. Sins forgiven, washed away in the blood of Christ. A new earth, a new heaven, wherein dwells righteousness. That's our destiny if we know Jesus as Savior. I pray we do. And if not, why not today? Why not today to call on the Lord and ask Him to be your Savior? Ask Him to open your heart and to grant you faith and to grant you repentance for your sins and simply to tell Him that and ask Christ to be your Savior. Blessed be the truth of your word, O Lord. Amen. Closing hymn is 239 in the hymnal. 239. Thank you. 
all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, today is New Year's, and I suspect that you have time lined up for your family to be together, and I think that's great. So have a good afternoon and evening. There's no evening church tonight, in case you didn't know. <clears throat> and the Lord bless you. Have a good day. Thank you.